There are playwrights who perform and direct their own work. Not a lot. I'm not one of them. In general, somebody else is going to direct my work, somebody else is going to design the lighting for my work, somebody else is going to act at my work, right? So my success is 100% dependent on the success of other professionals who are grown-ups and have to make their own decisions, their own professional decisions. And so the more I can get, treat them as fellow professional grown-ups and give them as much information as I can, and, I, and that sort of way of approaching my work as a game maker has always been very valuable to me. We were super fortunate to get some of Aaron Loeb's time uh, this week. And Aaron Merrickwin's time as well. Yeah, you know, it was the first time I've been on a uh, recording with two Aarons, um, <laughs> a Aaron and a Aaron. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I survived. You know what's funny that you bring that up? How many skits? Think about this. There's a skit that exists on the internet of people pronouncing names funny that has permeated the entire. It, that skit actually, the Starbucks. Remember when we worked at when IT started? There was a Starbucks on the corner, right? They would always spell my yeah. name E R I N. Like, would you, where would you, you know, to, on the drink, right? Isn't that, that skit comes that's out? The, that's a, it's a female name, right? I mean, that's yeah, Aaron it's the female like, version. You could also spell it E R E N, which is one of the characters from Titanfall, Aaron Yeager. Okay, um, which is my skin right now in Fortnite. Anyways, that that uh, that skit comes out. Everyone started calling me A A Ron to this day. <laughs> and Starbucks never spells my name wrong anymore. Isn't that crazy? Wow, talk about impact. Yeah, personal impact <laughs> yeah. right there. That's, that's pretty good. That's I'm pretty touched good. by that skit. Um, so, all right, what do you got going on? What do you got going on these days, Aaron? What's happening? Let's see. I, I'm, I'm, for some reason, I'm buying a lot of classic miniaturized video games. I can't control oh, myself. Oh, you were telling me. I gotta. Oh, yeah. I gotta find one of those. Actually, you know that's a great idea. You said there's a Tetris one, right? There's a Tetris one that is amazing. I have to show it to you. I have them over there. I'll, after we record, I'll show you. I got Miss Pac-Man, which was like thirty bucks. Ooh. The Tetris one. There was only three left in the store yesterday, and I ordered another. Ah, one damn! Was it three. like? Was it Amazon? Amazon has them. Yeah. L- look up. Are you cleared them out? Arcade. <laughs> I bought three though, one for my mom, one for my one of my daughters. I was like, I gotta have it, and then I I got one for myself, and I got regular Pac Man. Uh, they have a bunch. They have they have Oregon Trail, the original Oregon <laughs> really? Trail. Yeah, and they have Galaga, they have uh, Frogger. Some of them are hard to find. They're really well, well made. All I all I see here is is Pac Man. That's all they got. It's Pac Man. That's all they got left. Oh wait, no, look they at have this Tetris. I'm sure they got Boom. more. Now. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, yes, yeah. I'll send you. It's called Micro. It's like a little. It's like a credit card size. Uh, and then I started yeah, looking at Game and Watch. Game and Watch has two. They have a Zelda and a Mario one. And I don't even know why I'm so into these. I think I'm fascinated by. Remember the movie Aliens? Whenever they're doing video yeah. calling with each other, and you just couldn't fathom video calling. Remember? <laughs> and now you and me are like we're looking at each other. You're in California. I'm in Texas. I know. It's, yeah. It's yeah. I think it like brings. I don't. Makes, so I don't, I'm not connecting the dots there. Uh, connect the dots for me. Micro arcade to futurism. The amount of effort, like the TV was like big and bulky. It was like a tube. Like you turn it on to go. Remember, it had like energy. You could hear it, and it was like uh-huh. so big. And 
the the console was like made out of like the plastic from the eighties, which you could probably, you know, make cars out of. It was so strong. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? So that big, all those contraptions are now the size of a credit card. And it makes those those feels bubble up of like, you know, like uh, it's not nostalgia. It's like, you know, like the the Mr. Gadget watch, you know, like you have an iWatch now. You know, it's like. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, if you could go you back know, to... Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's like, like when the... You remember when the Dick Tracy movie came out? <laughs> yeah, I do. I think it was Madonna in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Was somebody it was, was in there. Yeah. Dude, that movie looked amazing, Warren Beatty. Too. Yeah, Warren Beatty. Yeah, and like the, the, the Dick Tracy watch, you know, was the thing. And we all have That's a freaking Dick, Dick Tracy. Tracy watch now if now we want do. one. I mean, we got one, you know? And and it and it's... I don't know. It, I, it, it, I Maybe what you're saying is kind of similar there, but it... It's uh, we just take it for granted now. Yeah, we just take it so for fast. It just came out of nowhere. Yeah. Anyways, those feels come up, and also the same feels I would get when I had a calculator watch, like having a calculator watch in the in the you know the you know that it was like. <laughs> I, something yeah, now that it. one, I can I can see how that it could be like back in style. Like, well, I want I would like a calculator watch because it maybe because it is retro, but like. What's the point? Like, when do you ever need to freaking use a calculator so bad that you want to have it on your wrist right there? Calculating a tip, calculating a tip at a restaurant without pulling your phone out, your big phone. <laughs> or I guess you have your iWatch. The iWatch has a calculator, right? Sure. Yeah. And then, I mean, if you want 20% of X, you just ask Siri or Alexa or somebody, you know, ask your chat, GP, whatever. Hoo-ha. Learn arithmetic. How about that? <laughs> That's true. Learn arithmetic. <laughs> class. Take an abacus with you. Okay, so what about this? You know your watch. So there is a line, I think, because your watch can actually tell. It could tell a lot just by your gait, like the biometric data. So they could yeah, take the gate. That's right. The walking gate tells them so much about you, about your like even like like really abstract stuff like diabetes and things like this. Like it will know. I think that's pretty crazy. And your blood pressure and that might be true. I guess from your gait. I don't know. I I know. Like if I get on my bike and I start riding my bike, it will come. It, my watch will say, "Hey, are you riding your bike?" Yes, it's oh, I'm good. Scary. I did the, the last weekend. I did the opposite, and I went off grid. Uh, we took a yes. camping trip and uh, drove up and camped on the beach. It was uh, it was pretty cool. It was a little more crowded than I I wanted it to be, you but saying, I got yeah. to drive on the sand, which was fun. That's cool. And I uh, got to cook outside. You do a donut? No, I didn't do any donuts. I, sh- I should have. I'm embarrassed to say I did not do any donuts. <laughs> but you took your phone, um, so you weren't really off the grid. Yeah, no, I, I took my phone. I took my iPad. had my watch. Um, no computer. Your, your truck is a computer, though. Your truck. <laughs> you can surf the <laughs> sure, internet on drive- your truck, right? Drivable, you su- my drivable computer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were totally clean. It was all electric. I had my... You know, I I made that electric kitchen. We did a little cookout uh, on the induction That's stove. Cool, that yeah. was uh... you should post a picture of that on the Discord. Okay, yeah, <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to find a connection between our craft and and our hobbies. But uh, speaking of which, we had a we did have a great conversation with Aaron Loeb, and uh, why don't we share that with everybody right now?
Hey everyone, today we have a very special guest with us. Aaron Loeb got his start in the game industry 30 years ago, I think at least 30 years ago, as the managing editor of Game Pen and later Next Generation Online. He made his way to game development by way of Planet Moon as CEO. That's a jump. That's pretty cool. Um, where they made Giant Citizen Naruto. Then Kabuto. look at the string of mobile hits. Kabuto. What did I say? You said Naruto. They say Naruto. Oh, Naruto. Naruto's a fighting game. Ah, you said wrong. Naruto. I heard Aruto, and I was yeah. like, that, I've never heard of no, that game. It's, <laughs> it's Naruto is actually a pretty fun fighting game. So that was probably um, uh, not a Freudian slip, but some sort of slip. But anyways, check out this string of mobile hits uh, under Aaron's belt here. The Simpsons tapped out. Marvel Contest of Champions. Marvel Strike Force. And hey, what you spend like the last year or two in the C-suite at Scopely, which just had a five billion dollar exit? Hey, Aaron, you want to buy a podcast? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and as if that wasn't enough, Aaron is also an award-winning playwright with productions off Broadway in New York and in San Francisco. Welcome to the program, Aaron. Great to see you. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you very much, Alex and Aaron. It's great to be here. And I appreciate it being referred to as a very special guest because I listen to the podcast and I note that. Everyone so far has been a very special guest, so it's really very meaningful to me. <laughs> Get the trade going of being a very special guest. Yeah. Because if you didn't call me a very special guest, it would be hurtful. You're, spe- you're special in many ways, Aaron. I, I, I remember meeting you, uh, it must have been, what, the late 90s in, at Bungie West in San Francisco, or in like San Jose. San Jose, um, yeah. And I, you must have been at NextGen then, right? Is that... Yeah, I was at Next Generation Online when you and I met. And yes, I remember meeting you as well. And uh, actually, one of my most distinct uh, video game industry memories, like still, even though it's so many years later, is you giving me a behind-closed-door demo of Halo before anybody had seen Halo. Oh, wow. And just seeing this thing being like... Oh my God! This is going to change everything, right? Like, <laughs> there's been a couple of demos for that era that I remember distinctly, like the Half Life demo. I remember first seeing Half Life in Atlanta, and I remember seeing Halo and just be, just the the physics of the Warthog, just being like, "What? Yeah, that's that's doable. Like that's, that's a thing that can happen in video games, <laughs> right?" It was, it was yeah, I remember meeting you as well. Did you work on print? So I occasionally yeah. did some writing for the print magazine. Yes. But I was prim- I was the editor in chief of of uh, Next Generation Online, which was primarily you know I would I would take some of the reviews from uh, the the print the print magazine, but sometimes some of our reviews from the web I'd, you know I'd write and they'd, they'd be the ones that would be published in print. But we were primarily known for news. Like so, mm-hmm. back then there weren't a lot of like sort of daily news sources in the video game industry. So kind of everybody in the industry read. Next Generation Online every day, which made it like a position of incredible, you know, sort of privilege to be the editor of that that website. And when I say the editor, I also mean the only staff person on it at all. So it was like every day, <laughs> covering like everything happening in the video game industry, working insane hours, right? But I got to meet everybody and, you know, sort of get yeah. to know everybody in the industry. You know, it's interesting that you say that because that's one of the things I love most about doing this podcast is getting to meet a lot of people. Um, not, not nearly at the pace you're talking about every, every day. Um, game journalist was your first industry gig, right? And I, how did you get into that? Did you, I mean, did you, do you have like a 
English degree or something? Or like, how, how did you, you're a writer, right? I mean, that's yeah. your trade. Yeah. Yeah. How did that all happen? Uh, it all happened, um, through, yeah, I, through writing. So I, my, my, uh, undergraduate degrees are in dramatic writing. So playwriting and dramatic literature. So kind of literary analysis of theater. Uh, and after college, I got into, you know, nobody makes a living in the theater. The, the famous expression theater is you, you can't make a living in the theater, but you can make a killing, right? So everybody, anybody who works in the theater has always got a, got a second job. And so I got into book publishing, actually, as my, my you know, first job out of college. And that swiftly turned into book publishing in the paper and pencil role-playing game industry. So uh, I was the oh, managing cool. editor of a company in Chicago, actually, called Pariah Press. You won't have heard of it, but huh. we made a game called The Whispering Vault, which, you know, maybe there's somebody listening to this podcast who's ever heard of that. Like, I hope so. Uh, and it was a you know, great, cool horror game. Uh, and um, from there, I then actually did theater full time for a while. Um, but ultimately, you know, uh, a person would go on to be a, uh, a, a bungee staff member who I'd gone to uh, high school with, a guy named Michael Evans, who then went on to Riot and now is at Theorycraft. Um, he had a spare room in the Bay Area, and he's like, hey, there's this weird dot-com thing happening out here. <laughs> Apparently there's just jobs <laughs> on trees, and you, know, you should move out here. There's gold in Mumbar Hills. And so yeah. Yeah, I, just, I packed up and moved to the Bay Area with no job, and just because he had a spare room that I could stay in. Uh, and you know, I was paying him three hundred dollars a month in rent in the Castro, which for anybody who lives in the Bay Area, they know that that's an <laughs> absolute insane number. Like I say, it was unbelievably cheap. And one of the earliest commercial, there was actually it's like sort of like the race to get to the moon first, or sorry, to put a band in space first. There was a race to be the first commercial website about video games. Uh, so and I went, and I joined a company that lost that race, but was one of the early ones. Uh, so, you know, the first <laughs> one was Happy Puppy, and that was GameSpot, which was like the best funded one, was the VC-backed one. And then uh, third one was a, game, uh, a site called GamePen, um, and I was editor-in-chief of GamePen. And that turned into the UGO network, which some people might remember. And so that's how I got oh, yeah. into to, to journalism, yeah. right? Um, but as so many, as a story of so many people's lives, uh, I met a girl or in some case a boy or but in my case it was a girl and uh <laughs> I, I quit that job and moved to be with her and uh very soon after i did that um the folks at imagine media contacted me because they needed a new editor-in-chief of next generation and they recruited me to come back to the bay area and run that and it was kind of a career-defining opportunity in my 20s and i was like i have you know i have to do that i love this business i love this industry and it was such an interesting job so I took the job, moved back to the Bay Area, and, and then that started the, my, that really launched my career in the video game industry. Hmm. So that wasn't your first. Right. That was not my first. Well, yeah. And NGO it was after GamePen, but um, that's, that's got to be a fairly non-standard route into the game industry, not necessarily journalism, but having it a degree in dramatic writing. Yeah, I have not, I I've, I've met some other theater people in the video game industry, and I think there's a lot more of us now actually um uh than when i started it but yeah at the time that was a really weird 
background. Yeah, like you're you're in college you, doing doing theater. You're probably not sitting around going, "How do I parlay this into video games?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, are you playing video <laughs> games at that time? Like, are you a gamer? Like, were you into it, or were you like, what was your free time spent? Were you going to like plays and watching plays with friends, or were you playing? Uh, well, I couldn't afford to go to a lot of plays because I lived in New York and the plays were, you know, really expensive. But yes, I saw as much theater as I could. But um, yeah, there was a game that came out back then called Civilization by a guy named Sid Meier. Oh, yeah. You may have heard of it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rings and, a bell. <laughs> Rings a bell, yeah. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was an all-consuming obsession. Uh, so yeah. yes, I played I played a board games, role-playing games, a ton of Warhammer with, with friends of mine. Warhammer, uh, and like paper um, and pencil though, right? Dice. Yeah, these are, these are paper and pencil, yeah. So I was playing yeah. a lot of like tabletop, but then video games, yeah, I was I was uh, uh, played mostly a PC gamer at that point. Um, one of my roommates had a SNES and we would, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd play the, the SNES together, but um, I was pretty obsessed with PC games. Can I ask a question real quick about what yeah. you just said about New York and the place? So when Alex said we were going to interview you, and he was like, this guy's a playwright. And I was like, what? And we were talking about how, how that's – it's it's a really interesting, like, angle uh, in, you know, like we just discussed. And then I started thinking about plays, and I wanted to ask you if – so are all the towns different? Like, you know how, like, you have burger joints, and, like, the burger joints in Chicago are different – they're pizza joints. They're different, and, like, oh, we're in this this town, and, like, the pizza's, like, they make it like this here – is it the same way with plays? Like when you're like in London or you're in like uh, Chicago and you're in New York, is the style different? The presentation, the cost, like is is that yeah. a, is that a thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I and I think that there's there's a stuff that's that is well known to everyone. So you know, uh, uh, the two major hubs in the English language of commercial theater are New York and London. And Broadway is, you know, 10x more expensive than the West End, uh, which is commercial theater here in London. Um, but the styles are, are wildly different. Like, so there's there's comparison of like theater at the very top. So people and so so uh, you know West End stuff is generally it's not really probably true, but I think it's generally considered a little more artistic and a little less commercial than Broadway stuff. I'm not. 100% that's true, but that's generally the reputation. But then when you get into the... Uh, so it's like indie and mainstream. <laughs> yeah, now I'm, I'm in the maximum main, mainstream. <laughs> when you get town, town by town, yeah, Chicago has a very specific style of theater. It's probably changed over the years, but it, it it's grown out of things like the Steppenwolf. And there's a bunch of actors who you'd recognize as you know Chicago actors. It's a sort of very muscular, direct acting style. Um, uh, it, um, Laurie Metcalf. Um, why am I suddenly blanking on, on all these great names? Michael Shannon is a is a one who's you know in a lot of movies now. Um, and then you know San Francisco had a much more experimental style. So Sam Shepard came out of San Francisco, um, and then New York is like got a very uh, kind of specific taste in theater because there's so much theater in New York that that it's sort of a you know you you get to theater that's almost assuming you've seen a ton of theater you, you can you that you can catch up and you already know all the tropes or whatever it's like very specific style as well so yeah every town has its own kind of way of doing things that's cool yeah i i have a i have a amusing uh uh new york theater story Aaron. i took my daughter to new york for her 13th birthday um 
to, and we went to go see a couple of shows. We went to go see Haiti, Haiti's Town, which oh, she had seen before, um, but is is amazing. And I found out that Cliff Blazinski is a producer of that. Did you know yes. that? Yes, I did know that. He was. I, I had no idea. That's amazing. Wow. Very proud of that fact. As he deserves to be. And uh, well, and that was one that she picked because she was she had seen it before and she loved it uh, and it was fantastic. And then I picked one and I, I picked one by just looking at what, what won uh, the Tony awards last year. And so I, have you heard of this uh, play called the strange loop? Yeah, uh, yes. A strange loop. Yes. <laughs> I haven't seen it's it. It's very yet. good. It's, I'm, I know. I'm it's, it's wildly sometimes. inappropriate for a father to be taking her 30, 13 year old daughter. Oh, really? to, and we had a lot of looking at the floor. <laughs> Uh, good good show good show but but uh yeah might have um sent her with a friend or gone a lot um <laughs> yeah, okay, well, i i I, I, don't, I haven't seen it i've been actually actively not reading anything i mean i know some of the, the sort of high level meta of it but um yeah so don't tell me anything about it because i'm coming to, yes. to london no spoilers no spoilers but but so so I'm actually what one thing I'm really curious about is like you so you were in journalism for a while and then you moved into development. Yes. And um what was that like, you know, being yeah. being on a I mean I I guess I don't know. I wouldn't nest, I wouldn't characterize you necessarily as a critic, but like on the other side, you know, maybe. I don't know. Did it feel that way at all? Or like what was it like joining Planet Moon and starting to work on games? Yeah, uh, I mean so first, I was very lucky uh, to have a lot of friends in the industry who knew me and, and sort of were, were my references and you know, told the Planet Moon guys, you, this guy's never made a video game, but you know he, he's got good taste and <laughs> should hire him. And the you know, Planet Moon guys took a chance on me, which was uh, incredibly kind of them. Um, you know, the, the first thing was that my, at, at that point, my experience in production which I had a lot of experience in production, both in theater and in websites. So I, you know, I'd run large teams build, building complicated websites, was not as useful as I thought it was going to be. So the the ongoing production problem of running a daily website turned out not to be a very useful, I mean, there, there were obviously mm-hmm. commonalities, but was not useful for the sort of A-frame house or you know bridge building uh, production style of building a game that's got a fixed release date, right? And so I had to learn a whole lot of new production skills. Um, the other thing that was sort of a maybe specific to Planet Moon, but the sort of shock awareness was I assumed that walking in the door, my, you know, s- snobby knowledge of video games of having been a critic and having played, you know, kind of everything that had come out for the past five years would be thought as really valuable for the team. And the team was like... <laughs> We don't care about your opinion. Shut up. <laughs> Tell us what the schedule is, right? You know, like, oh, okay, sorry. You know, but I mean, I, you know, I was there for ten years, so obviously I worked through that. We 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 became very close, but um, and I had to learn as every producer does, because you know, producer is the most ill-defined position in the video games industry. I had to learn how to be maximally useful to this team, and that included doing research for them. So I was able to draw on my sort of dramaturgy skills from theater you know we were writing this game armed and dangerous and i was you know researching just crazy stuff for for tim williams the writer like you know and and finding reference art from like world war one because we were using a lot of sort of world war one themed stuff in it you know like 
that was a really interesting, uh, uh, fun part of the job. But it was mostly trying to help people figure out just how to solve problems. That was what I was doing all day. And so that meant just sort of a constant adjustment. And then, of course, 10 years later, when I got into free-to-play and running services, suddenly that experience from 10 years earlier, I was like, oh, <laughs> my mom's just an editorial calendar. Okay, I know this. <laughs> you know, bring back a lot of those skills 10 years later. That's really, that's really interesting, yeah. Uh, but at the core of your question, the first, the first time uh, I got a negative review from a game that I'd worked really hard on that I felt was wildly unfair... I've, you know, it was a, it was an icy dagger through the heart of recognizing every time I'd done that to a game developer, and uh, I think it was my friend Travis Williams. I, you know, I told him about this. Travis just laughed at me. He was like, "That's what you get." <laughs> this realization, of, oh, oh, that's why you don't just glibly say this game's garbage. It's because somebody really, you know, <laughs> yeah. They worked real hard on that thing, and yeah. you know, they, you know, they deserve maybe a, a more thoughtful uh, uh, critique than that. Um, so yes, that part of it was definitely an eye opener. Being, you know, being did, did you did time. you friend did you friend up with any of the uh, the other critics? Because y'all were at the start of the the games. You mentioned Gamespot. A lot of people that started that, you know, they they branched off in the Giant Bomb and. Um, you know, even game studios, right? So, like, yeah. are you do you, are, you, are you connected to any of those people? Like Jeff Gertz, yeah. one of those those guys. Yeah. So, a, a a ton of us still talk to each other. I think there's still a bit of an Imagine Media group where we talk. You know, we we'll, we're all Facebook friends. We'll we'll chat. But yeah, I worked very closely with Amira Jami, who was one of the early GameSpot folks for years at Fox and at Kabam Fox and uh, Scopely. Um, Greg and I haven't talked in a while, but you know we we know each other from our days in the press uh, from Greg from Giant Bomb. Um, so you, you know, but but more it's like the Imagine Media folks, like Frank O'Connor, Chris Charla, uh, uh, the, like those folks, Gary Witta. Like we still have a lot of bonds uh, from those from those times. Yeah. And and a, f- a fair amount of uh, those folks have made their way into um, game development as as well. It, yeah, Hades. Uh, is that that's right? Yeah. So, well, yeah. There, there's been a pretty significant the the folks who were running games, magazines, and websites in the '90s. A lot of them have gone on to be in pretty significant positions in the games industry. Um, yeah. And uh, in very in in very different significant positions, right? Um, I think not a ton of them have gone into mobile as as I have, but but you know, most most are in the sort of console side of the business. But um, uh, it's it you know it's it's gratifying. It was it was a, it was an interesting time of the industry, an interesting time in my life because it was you know felt like that time in Imagine Media was like the stories you hear about you know, being in the writers' room for Sid Caesar or something, where it's you know just everyone you're working with is hilarious and brilliant. And just like everybody from the writers of Sid Caesar went on to become, you know, the people who created television and were all, you know, created all the greatest shows, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, right? It that group has gone on to do sort of amazing things, and and they were, you know, great creators, and you know, obviously our our shining star is Gary, who went on to write Rogue One. But uh, there's, you know, the rest of us have done some things. He wrote Rogue One. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite Star Wars movie, actually. <laughs> it's so good. He's the editor in chief of PC Gamer. Who wrote uh, wrote Rogue One? 
That's amazing. I didn't know yeah. that. That's a it's a really good movie. Yeah, you, you all you all have some pretty good stories. I mean, like uh, um, I know you mentioned Chris Charlie. He's like running. Uh, I forget his division on Xbox, but ID, he's basically curating. Yeah, that's right. You're curating an entire slate of games there. Um, yeah, very cool. So, all right. So, ten years of Planet Moon doing sort of um, traditional box product games, right? And then. Yeah. And is that when, did you come to EA after that or what was in between? Yeah. So, uh, Planet Moon kind of hit a wall in 2012, 2011, 2012. Uh, and we had a, a very fortunate exit. You know, I, I, I never want to snow any about this. It was an absolute fire sale exit. We managed to do an aqua hire with a big point, uh, which I, you know, was very proud of because we were in real trouble and I managed to you know get everybody jobs and you know like gracefully shut down the studio which is in, you know very challenging and painful whenever you you have to go through that as a studio uh, as a CEO I can relate Aaron I can relate yeah yeah <laughs> we used to work for EA I don't know if you know that yeah yeah we used to work for EA <laughs> we yeah. used to work for EA yeah, I don't know I, heard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean I think it was it's more possible when you aren't owned by another company, right? You know, I was able to move fast and make whatever deal I needed to do. So, you know, don't, yeah, don't, yeah. don't beat yourself up about it. It's almost impossible when you're owned by a big company. Um, <laughs> having, having been through that as well. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we managed to gracefully shut down Planet Moon. And then I thought I was going to take a bunch of time off. And again, this great network of people in the industry who've been very kind to me made a connection to me with, EA and EA had bought a free-to-play business called Playfish and had built a San Francisco studio there and the GM of that studio had left and I was you know just been a CEO of a studio there in San Francisco and so it was a pretty natural connection and so EA brought me in uh, to be the head of the San Francisco studio and it was movement from packaged goods into free-to-play Facebook games and I made that jump like anxiously. I was really excited about that, right? Because um, I felt like my lesson learned from packaged goods games was that you know you spend all these years working hard on a game, you get one essential, essentially one swing at it. You know, it comes out, Gamespasm.net says, "Boo, this game sucks." Your Metacritic is a seven. You don't sell any units, and you're laying people off. Right. And that cycle, you know, was, was a, is a bit of a meat grinder. And I was seeing a lot of friends go through that and just the chase for capital for the next project, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I was excited about learning this sort of new trade of a service where you could go straight to the consumers, the direct consumer part of it that I was incredibly excited by. Right. I can test this game. I can see actually, the consumers will tell me directly what they think of this game and I can adjust based on that. Rather than having to be, you know, uh, uh, mediated by by uh, the media. Um, not that I have a big problem with the media. I love the media. I'm a former reporter. You're the best. But I, <laughs> full disclosure. <laughs> Come on, you're re you're retired. You can bash anybody you want. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's. I don't know how acute that problem is for the AAA business anymore because there's so many websites. YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. So like, I'm not sure Twitch. that it's like. It was yeah. then. But then it was really painful, right? It was like if you didn't get an eight eight point five or above, your game was dead, basically. Yeah, there uh, was that whole season where they were uh, 
who was it that started to like not allow certain magazines to even look at their game? Do you remember yeah. that? It was like certain that. companies were like, you can't come in. We're only going to yeah. invite GameSpot and IGN, everybody else. It was weird. It was like this like war going. <laughs> it's like yeah, it was yeah. very strange. Yeah, because it was it was it was kind of people. Well, I think it was also at that moment in the industry there was this crazy thing, which is people's pay was being tied to these these Metacritic scores, right? So people would yeah. get oh, a yeah. bonus based on whether or not they got a, a nine. And so this was you know deadly serious for the people who were making these games. They had to you know, do whatever it was going to take. And so you, you yeah. go, you know, to, to you know, decrypt what's going to make this editor happy and go try to figure out how do we get the score from that part. And I just, I wasn't interested in that kind of game making because it's time consuming and painful. Um, and I wanted to try this move, this faster moving direct consumer thing. And so, you know, uh, got into web games um, and found that to be uh, also incredibly difficult. So there is no... Turns out the grass is always greener on the other side of the cesspool. It's <laughs> yeah. also, like, unbelievably hard. And, you know, you, you, you see this data. Like, I was, I, it, it became pretty quick. I would, I would be amused whenever I'd interview somebody who was trying to make this transition. And, and it was universally somebody who's coming from packaged goods would be like, well, you know, I'm really excited about this space because I'll just, you know, learn from the data. And I'd be like, well, what would you learn from the data? Like, well, the consumers will tell me what to do, and then I'll just do that in the game. And I'm like, oh, oh, sweet summer child. Like, <laughs> you get this data, and you're like, what does it mean? I have no idea. It means it's either good or bad. Like, they either want more of this or less of this. All we know is they hate it. Like, we don't, we don't know why. Right? Like, they're all leaving the game. Why? I don't know. Right? And so, like, the as as you guys know from the, the service game business, it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of very hard work. It's a work of just like constant experiments, constant hypotheses yeah. that you try out in the software, and it turns out that it's wrong. And there's fifty thousand things you can see in the software. There's fifty thousand things you should do, and you only have time for ten of them. Like, how are we going to do these ten things, right? So it's like learning this whole different, new, painful, you know, uh, uh, discipline, but one that I felt better equipped for uh, in some ways because of my background uh, running websites, because I knew. You know, other people who I was working with had only ever done the packaged goods things, and I'd run you know really large scaled web products. So uh, there was this game called Simpsons Tapped Out that uh, was you know one of one of EA's top premium mobile games. So it had been built. It was built as a pre, it was going to be sold for I don't, I don't remember what like five dollars. And then halfway through development, free to play happened. I I had nothing to do with oh, this. So somebody... that was a pivot. That was a pivot yes. mid development. I thought, yes. I didn't I thought it that. shipped. I thought it shipped premium. Oh, oh. no, it didn't. It didn't ship. Premium. It didn't. Oh, okay. no, it did not. Okay. So Simpsons tapped out was developed by a, a an awesome mobile developer. They'd been in, in it since the feature phone day called Byte, B I G H T, not B Y T E, in Prince Edward Island. And they had That's done right. NBA Jam, and they were just the brilliant mobile game developers. And they were, you know, working on a premium game. And then halfway through, EA pivoted and made it a free-to-play game. And nobody really understood free-to-play games. And it, uh, this is before I joined, but it was really the right decision. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to credit people for their their genius that, here. That game, right? you know, that game is still in service. The game is still in it service is. and still, it's still profitable. I think it still has yeah, like a million amazing. people playing it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's an absolute war. I'm incredible. curious. I, I, just I, I, I want you to keep going with that thought. But like, where, yeah, the yeah. decision to turn it free to play, who like did that come from on top? 
was that somebody's idea in the in the team? Was that was that before you got there? Were you there when that decision was made? I'm curious. Uh, I no, I, so I was not there when that decision was made. I was I think I was at EA, but I was not at EA Mobile yet. So I was in this okay. sort of playfish earnout bubble working on web games. Got right? it. Um, I think it was the the EP maybe, uh, or it was the the sort of EA Mobile leadership team that made that decision. I'm not actually. Okay. Sure. Who specifically so there's made a, it? There's a there's de- a develop, development team and uh, at uh, in northeastern Canada that gets on the on the phone one day and they're like, "Hey guys, uh, can, yeah, I got a pitch idea. for you." <laughs> Dude, it was Great. a good idea though, right? Can you, if that game would have shipped premium, that game would we would <laughs> it would have three months Absolutely. in the store probably. And 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 you remember, or maybe most people won't remember this. So EA, so those days in mobile for EA were exceptionally painful. So EA in the early days of smartphones hasn't hasn't changed, Aaron. Hasn't changed. Every everything's great. <laughs> Come on, Alex. <laughs> Jeez, sorry. So EA had something like eighty percent market share in the premium era of yeah. mobile, right? People were buying Sims Mobile. They're buying like when when people would buy games on mobile, like almost all of them were EA games, and they were really good. EA was making the best games on mobile by Dead far. Space, right? They were crushing everybody, right? Oh yeah, that's and right. Yeah. So it's classic innovators dilemma, right? So free to play starts taking over mobile, and you have these leaders uh, who aren't you know dumb people who are you know crushing it. They're making incredible profits. And like, yeah, free to play is probably going to win eventually, but we have time. Let's keep doing the premium stuff. And the speed with which it was disrupted, the speed with which it flipped from premium to free to play was like nothing we've seen in our industry before. Right. I mean, it was like, no, these, these were not dumb people. Right. This was not because they made, I mean, people could look back and look, oh, how could they have missed it? Like it was overnight, like the entire industry shifted yeah, in a way yeah. that we don't usually see. And so it was, it was heyday, right? Heyday came out and it was like, yeah, the, was it heyday was one that, yeah. Kingdoms of Camelot from Kabam actually was an early one that uh, was doing very well yeah. in, in, in the free to play era that came. But yes, heyday was a great example, one that just, took off uh, uh, like a like a rocket. And so anyway, so they had a bunch of premium games in their slate, and they had to go through it and be like, okay, we got to make these things free to play. And some of them they didn't, and some of them they did, and Simpsons fortunately was one. And so they did it, but they did it in a rush, and they had a lot of people on it who'd never made a service of any kind before. And so the back end was rushed and done poorly. You know, I'll say frankly. It was done poorly. It was not yeah. done by the folks at Byte, just to be clear. It was not them. Right. It's another group yeah. whose name I will not mention. Uh, and they launched the game, right? <laughs> Clearly, they, you know, at this point, I had uh, moved into EA Mobile, and I remember you know, the, the, oh, no. during was the this launch. Like your first week? Your first week, yeah. the launch comes out? and <laughs> I was, I was oh, not no. yet on the game, but yes, I was just had just moved to EA Mobile. I was learning the ropes about mobile, and we're all like, okay, this launch is going to be huge for us. We've, we've done it. We've done a beta test in Canada for three days and we can see the numbers are great. Let's go worldwide. I mean, it was like that kind of thing. This is where this is the early days. People didn't know. So, <laughs> so, so they, go, they go out worldwide and the game just falls flat on its face. I mean, it just, it totally doesn't work back end. Like, I, like physically, right? Like if it's crashing and people can't connect that, that kind of thing. right? It, it, yes, exactly. So basically there is a bunch of cheat prevention in it. And the way that it was writing to the server was spoofing the game into thinking that people were cheating. 
And so people would, it, like, mm. they'd start playing, and then an hour later, the game's telling them, you know, they're kicked out and they're they're cheating, right? It didn't, and their I think accounts locked. Like, <laughs> they would just lock them out of their game, right? And so, you know, it's like getting a million installs a minute, and then every install is putting more load on these servers, slowing wow. the right time, which is then causing the more and more errors. It's just a complete disaster. So, yeah, they had to pull it from the store. Um, and so this was, you know, at EA was a giant crisis. And for whatever reason, I mean, I've, I... I Thank my lucky stars every day. Nick Earl, who's the head of EA Mobile, was like, Aaron, you know web services and stuff, right? They're like, yeah, go fix it. <laughs> You're the general manager now. They're like, oh, okay. And so I was put in there to, to, to lead the team to go fix it and get it back out on the market. And it did completely change the trajectory of my career. And so we, you know, we fixed it. Uh, I nice will say save. That. Uh, well done thanks to all me actually i personally rewrote the server code yeah (laughs) (laughs) so did y'all release a mobile version too or not a mobile a web version as well no No? No. because i remember there was like that was the the uh, like the other parallel almost like the vr was everyone was like is it free to play on mobile or is it facebook games and farmville was a big one so so timeline here is interesting maybe for the historians but just to be clear right at that time when tapped out's coming out is is also the time where facebook changed its policies and kind of killed virality on facebook and so the facebook game industry just completely fell off a cliff right so that was right at that's why i moved coincidentally yeah yeah that was right after disney but Playdom as well. So it's yeah, really all that money on yeah. Playdom and then Playdom's business started to dry up. But, but Aaron, tell me about like, so, so you get, Nick Earl asks you to go and uh, fix, fix the ship over, over yeah. on Simpsons tapped out. I got to imagine um, that must've been super challenging having a team that, and so because this game is not successful yet. Like the, the experience of this game is it had a launch and it was a disaster and EA pulled it from the store I'm guessing morale's pretty low. There's uh, probably plenty of finger pointing going on. Who knows what? Yes. But how, like, what was your approach? Like, how how did you go? How did how did you get in there and sort of get to? Okay, it's it's yeah. you know eventually over time. And I don't know what the timeline was where it where it got back on its feet and it was on the trajectory of the big success it, took, that it was. It, it, six, it took six, six months. So, like, how did you navigate that six that six months? So the the first and most critical thing was was getting a group of expert outsiders who understood services who were coming from the MMO business. So it was this group of essentially uh, you know hired guns. They weren't hired guns. They were all EA employees. But there's a group of like excellent experts who had literally just been in Austin getting um, uh, a SWOTOR to launch. Right. Okay. So they had just been working on severe server problems on Sotor, right? And they were reassigned over to uh, help with help with uh, uh, Simpsons. And so it's like working closely with these guys who are one a very high end uh, producer, like project manager type producer. Uh, project manager is too diminutive for him. He's like a brilliant uh, uh, producer. And he was like sort of the the giant list of everything that had to get done, and then some great back-end engineers uh, who also understood client and 
kind of essentially running a war room, talking to them every single day. And it was, there were essentially three major fronts of fixing it, or actually four. One was upward management, so keeping the executives from throwing up every day. We had to hold hands, and, you know, calm them down, right? Because this was really a big deal. So tell, give them progress updates, show them how everything was going to be okay. Give them because they wanted it back on the market in a month, right? And so when it was six months, like there was a significant amount of problems with that. Uh, the other was licensor management. So as you can imagine, mm. if you're Fox, yeah, right, this is a really, really big problem. And so it's a you know. To, I guess perhaps as a sign that I did a pretty good job with licensure management, like the person running licensing at Fox, this guy uh, 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 named uh, Rick, who he and I ended up running the Fox games business together. Like we became very, we, we ended up being very close colleagues. <laughs> but you know, at the time, Rick was uh, was was quite unhappy. Rick Phillips is a full name, so Rick Rick was quite unhappy at the time. And obviously, you know, the folks at Gracie. So a lot of people maybe know this about this game or don't know this about this game, but. This game, like the genius of Tapped Out, is that the writers of the show wrote almost all of the dialogue, right? So the folks at Gracie had put in way more work into this game than the average, you know, licensor. I mean, they're not a licensor; they're right. the they are the co-creators of this game, and you know, they're like, okay, we trust you guys. You're the game makers. We trust you technically. We're making this awesome creative stuff happen, and then you fall flat on your face. So, like rebuilding their confidence that we're going to fix this. I mean, they were rightly quite displeased, right? And so rebuilding their confidence was an incredibly important part. Then on the team level, like managing morale, exactly as you're saying. So you, so you have this serious problem, which is you have the, the developer who'd been, you know, sort of carrying all the water to actually build this game, feeling like they're getting everybody just screaming at them and their careers are in jeopardy and they made a really good game. The, the numbers were clear. Like, it was getting millions of installs. People were loving it before they got locked out. They were a really good game. EA had hired the people who'd done the back end that broke, right? So, like, why is everybody mad at us? This is unfair. And so, like, getting those people calmed down and getting them focused on the task, et cetera, and mostly yeah. getting them focused on the runway, right, the content coming in the next six months, which I think was yeah. the great. That was probably one of the reasons why it ended up, it was, it, was, it was very painful, but it was good for the yeah, game. That's what I was going to ask you. Because we built up a, yeah, we built up a six-month content pipeline. So that when we oh, came out, amazing. we had our next. So it worked out. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Six months of content ready to go, right? Uh, because the team got focused and, and did the work. And then finally, there was the technical component, which, you know, I can broadly explain, but obviously I can only <laughs> so help with. And that right. was that was also a, a corporate problem solve, right? Which is okay. We have this group that built this. Obviously, we have to fire them immediately, and we're going to just need to take a team from somewhere else at EA and have them build the new backend, right? And we you know, we we negotiated with the other parts of the company, and we took a team from Pogo and they uh, in Kitchener, Ontario, and they rebuilt the game. And so the the game ended up being built, being you know sort of run across. Redwood Shores, L.A., Kitchener, Ontario, and Prince Edward Island with, you know, this highly distributed team. <laughs> Eventually, you had Austin Completely continental yeah. enterprise right yeah, there. Yeah, quite, so, I mean, I imagine that was probably the part that took the longest amount of time was rewriting the the, the server back yeah, end. Yeah, but, so, it sounds like a thread through each of those those partners that you were trying to assure and 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 get some confidence back was the idea that things were going to be okay. We have a plan. Yes. Um, 
I'm just curious if you remember, like, what what do you say in a situation like that to make somebody feel like it's going to be okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, I've been I've been in that situation before, and I know how tricky yeah. it can be. Um, yeah, and I'm just my, curious if you remember that because some of those are very can be very memorable. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I remember is uh, uh, my tactic was to just be as transparent as possible. So so give them as much information as was possible about what the plan was, how, and give them clear. Think, clear sort of uh, milestones of like, you will know that it's working when the following thing right. happens. Like we are, we yeah. are fixing a million accounts in a month. And if we mm. successfully fix those million accounts, you'll know that our plan is working. And if we can't, it means we aren't, you know, we're not doing as well as we think we did. And we did fix the million accounts. I think we fixed them early. Like it was that kind of stuff. And just giving them regular, constant communication because my experience is where people get most paranoid and upset is in a vacuum of information. That's true for, you know, executives. That's true for yep. people working on the ground at a dev studio. Like anytime you got a lack of information, people will assume the worst and start telling each other yeah. things that are even worse than that. And so you got to just like <laughs> <Yeah>. constantly, <laughs> aggressively, openly communicate with everybody as transparently as you can. And slowly but surely, if things are going the way that you think that they're that you said they were going to go, right? And you're not being proven to be a liar constantly, right? People will start having faith in you, and then they'll even yeah. forgive you when something didn't go the, quite the way that you said it would. Yeah. See, I, I'm I'm seeing a connection. I'm seeing a through line connection here from your your uh, background studying theater and communicating effectively, you know, and, and that's a big part of how you build trust. When you say being transparent, it's, it's really about, yeah, it's like if, you, if, if, if there's a gap in understanding, people write their own story, you know, yeah, and being right. able to give somebody a story that they believe and not, not story, but you know, the, the, the info in a way that they believe and they can trust you. Yes. Then, mm-hmm. then uh, yeah, that's a great way to build back trust the the deeper insight that comes from theater that that's i think served me well through my my whole career there's several of them but but on this vein is you know because in the theater there's it's interdisciplinary and incredibly collaborative so as a playwright there are playwrights who perform and direct their own work not a lot right but as a playwright i'm not one of them in general Somebody else is going to direct my work. Somebody else is going to design the lighting for my work. Somebody else is going to act at my work, right? So my success is 100% dependent on the success of other professionals who are grown-ups and have to make their own decisions, their own professional decisions. And so the more I can get, treat them as fellow professional grown-ups and give them inform, as much information <laughs> as I can to make their decision and even, importantly, understand their process ask them questions to understand what's going to help you make this decision, right? So I can provide provide it to you if it's within my power to do so, right? And I and that sort of way of approaching my work as a game maker has always been very valuable to me. I mean, I think it's no probably secret to people who make games that there are some people in the industry who sort of view anybody below a certain line as kind of, you know, monkeys in a box who you kick and say, give us the game. Right, like, right. Here's here's a design, monkeys. <laughs> give, us the, give us the game, right, or whatever. Ah, code monkeys, go make it. Like, 
And that's obviously wrong, but it's even worse. It's dumb, right? It's like it's a terrible you you will you will not get good results by doing that, right? right. And yeah. so yeah. Yeah, you sort of treating everybody involved up and down the chain as professionals who deserve as you know full information because I don't know what can be that's going to be the critical piece of information for them to make their best decision. So it's important to be transparent. You know, I I think it helps too when the captain isn't freaking out. You know, like if you look at your captain and they're like, they you know what I'm saying. Because yeah. I've, I've yeah. been in situations where the captain's freaking out, and it's like morale just yeah. <laughs> just goes right out the door. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, we're all gonna die! <laughs> we're yeah. all gonna as soon die! As the, as soon as the uh, <laughs> as soon as the captain's in the lifeboat, you know, you know, yeah, the exactly. ship's going down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seriously, I, I I I'm that's to me that's been the biggest like thing, you know. Yeah. It's like you look at so, your captain; they're like straight, you know. You can be vulnerable with your team if things aren't good. It's not great to pretend that things are good. Uh, sure. You can be clear, like things are bad right now. But if you look like <laughs> it's all over, I've given up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so six months went by. Everything was fixed. Um, I In that process, I think another key thing I did during that six months was I moved the center of power on the game to Prince Edward Island. So it had been steered by, it was almost, it was, so we had bought Byte, so they were part of EA, but it was still being treated like it was an externally developed project with a with a production team sitting in LA, steering this team mm-hmm. in Prince Edward Island. I was like, that doesn't make any sense, right? Particularly in live services. Like this is where my experience in, in running things, but like, that's as, that doesn't make any sense. The people who are on the data, daily grind have to be the organizing intelligence of what they're doing every day. It's vital or it'll fail. And so that's actually done a through line through a lot of my career, including Contest of Champions, um, of just like moving as much, you know, decentralizing as much as possible when you have a hit and moving as much sort of power to move fast into the studio as possible. Because I think a lot of companies like the, you know, the benefits of scale and the cheapness that comes from having, let's say, a, a central live ops team sitting in a lower cost location or, you know, a, a, right. a QA team that's entirely outsourced or whatever. But, you know, the, the problem with live services is you have one relentless enemy and it is time. Right. <laughs> time will kill you every time, right? You have, like, you have 50,000 things you want to do and you can only get to 10 of them. And if it's possible to organize the, the, the system so you can do 11, that could be the difference between success and failure, right? And so as much as you can That's do right. the streamline process. That's right. You know, you it's, it's interesting. People don't necessarily do that arithmetic, but that example you gave right there, if you can do 11 instead of 10, you can increase x by 10 percent, and some of these games are operating on margin right and 10 percent additional margin is perhaps a 50 percent better game yes commercially That's right. you know yeah uh, so yeah. it's a huge deal it's a huge contest of champions um, was a very good game <laughs> commercially it is a very good game it still <laughs> it's is two, i think it's over two billion dollars at this point nice oh my gosh he's the highest grossing marvel game of all time i'm pretty sure really Touch it. Yeah. Wow. Two billion. We were talking about that uh, just like an hour ago. Um, mm-hmm. 
that there are I think there are four at least four big Marvel mobile games now with Marvel Snap, mm-hmm. um, and I think you've been very close to at least two of them, unless yeah. there's something I don't know. Um, so I'm kind of curious. So yeah, so. And give us the timeline. After EA, you were at Kabam, and then Kabam evolved into uh, a Fox, and then yeah. eventually Scopely. But in that stretch, yeah. right, it was Contest of Champions and Marvel Strike Force. Yeah, yeah. So quickly, um, you know, uh, we grew Simpsons for a couple years, and then I felt like I wasn't learning free to play fast enough, basically. Um, I, I loved EA. I learned a lot of EA. I'm, I'm eternally grateful to that company. But I ultimately wanted to be at a place that was, you know, inherently a services company. And Kabam was built from the ground up as a games as a service company. And so I went there. And, you know, it kind of day one walked in. I was like, oh, that's what I haven't been understanding. Like, I just like the amount of stuff I saw. I was like, <laughs> of course, of course, we were measuring everything wrong. Like, I, it was it was quite a great experience. And um when I went there, there were a bunch of there were a ton of products on the slate, and one of them was Contest of Champions, and it was sort of being treated as one of the games on the slate. And the team in Vancouver that made that game, led by Tim Fields, who would go on to be the CEO of Command, was just a brilliant, brilliant team. But they didn't have everything they needed, right? And it was like one of many games. And so, you know, working with Kevin Chu, the CEO, I was like, we gotta, we gotta put as much stuff. Like the the our problem is not going to be failure. Failure is not an interesting question. Our problem is going to be success, and success will kill us with this game. We are not ready to build, to run a game as big as this game can be, right? And so we we restructured the company. We put as much as we could into Vancouver, um, you know, very ably led by the brilliant Tim Fields. Uh, uh, I, I, if I haven't said it enough, man's brilliant. I, you know, like it was, it was just a joy <laughs> to watch it work. Uh, and they, you know, they launched this uh, uh, incredible hit game, and they were able to because we'd restructured things. They were able to really run as much as possible. So UA was done in San Francisco, but nearly everything else was being steered out of Vancouver uh, pretty quickly. Um, and that then actually, so then to go quickly through the chain of events, that then enabled us when we sold the company to sell just the Vancouver studio, right? Which was not really, you know, so so it was not the primary plan. So the, the way we went went to the market to sell Kabam, at the time there were companies paying just essentially 10X EBITDA. So it was the market and said, hey, you can buy this, you can buy this company for 10X Marvel Strike Force's EBITDA, or sorry, sorry, Marvel uh, uh, Concept of Champions EBITDA, but if you want the rest of the company, you can't discount the price for the because of the cost of the rest of the company because the rest of the company right. is also valuable and for, and for and for our non-accounting aligned listeners oh, yeah, are talking about yeah. basically the bottom line 10 10x profit basically <laughs> yeah 10x profit yeah 10x profit that's good <laughs> yeah. earnings before interest tax d- debt and amortization and amortization <laughs> thank you <laughs> i knew, they knew that was gonna get me uh so um we uh we we ended up you know ha- having a couple potential buyers, but Netmarble ultimately w- uh, bought just Contest of Champions in the Vancouver studio, which left us with the rest of the company, which we spun out into a company called Aftershock. I then led the sale of Aftershock, which went to Fox, and in the process of selling to Fox, they were like, well, why don't you come and build our video game business? And that was you know Rick Phillips, who I had worked with on Simpsons, and yes, uh, that's right, Sol that's Nathan. right. So, so they recruited me to come down. I moved to LA, and I ran, and we built the Fox Games business. 
But soon after, Disney acquired Fox. And so on day one, because <laughs> somebody used to run the Disney business, games business, that made them scared of games, Alex. I don't know who it was. I, think it was <laughs> <laughs> I, I may have spent a little too much what? money. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. What? We, we are done I don't know the joke. Why are y'all... What's the joke? I don't. I don't get it. <laughs> what happened? It's not funny. No, it's not. <laughs> not funny. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they they had made the decision not to do internal development anymore, uh, uh, and so they put us on up for sale the day day one we were there. So we were there for at Disney for a year, and then ultimately sold to Scopely. And I had intended to step off the merry-go-round at that point. It had been multiple sales in rapid succession. I was like, this is fine. I'm, I, you know, thank you. I'm done. Uh, but the guys are awesome, and they were very charming, and they convinced me to, to come aboard and help them build it to the sort of the next level of scale. It was like 400 people right before they bought us, and so over the three years, we built it up to 2,000 people. It was sort of marginally profitable when we started. It became really profitable by the end, and then obviously... There's another transaction happened. I was like, okay, all right, now, now, <laughs> step off the wheel. Two thousand people. That was that. That's Scopely, right? Scopely was two thousand. Not just yeah, not yes, not okay, just right, the Fox version. No, and the Fox yes, version right, right, was right, right. about okay. two hundred some people. Wow, what a what a crazy journey there. And I'm curious. So, like, when you guys are selling Kabam. Because I do remember when Kabam was like it was basically going on the market. I'm curious, what yeah. was it, what was what was like your conversation? You're like you guys, hey guys, we got to have a meeting. We got these off this off. Blah, blah, blah. What was that conversation like when they were pitching? <laughs> We're gonna split the company in half. Aaron, you're going that way. Tim, you're going that way. Here's what's happening. What was that yeah. like? Do you guys like roll dice, draw straws? Was there, <laughs> was there crying, cheering? What 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 happened in there? I think it's you know. Anybody who's worked with Kevin Chu recognize that you just essentially you're dealing with a next level intelligence when you when you deal with him. And so he walked us through his strategy of how to sell this company that involved possibly splitting it. The hope was to not split it, but involved possibly splitting it. And the logic behind his decision was to me pretty unimpeachable. So I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And I remember you know talking to the the folks up in Vancouver and telling the leaders there, you know, this is what we're thinking, and I. My recollection is that they understood it and they, they didn't hate it because it could potentially involve them having their own company, basically. And that is what happened. They were, you know, Tim became CEO of Kabam. Um, and we also were, so I, my, I guess my recollection of the time that's complicated is we were all having to hold in our heads and in our hearts the possibility, the two possibilities. We were Schrodinger's company. We were all like, imagine <laughs> we might split up at any moment. We might also still be one company where, you know, so, so Tim, either you're going to be CEO of your own company or you're going to keep reporting to me as, as studios because we're going to sell the whole company together. It was just, that was weird. That part was really weird. Uh, and maybe went on a little too long. Um, but, you know, ultimately the process of selling it, because we, you know, it was a pretty hot commodity. Uh, we talked to everybody in the industry. It was like the most in-depth management presentation series that I've, you know, experienced a lot of sales now, you know, we flew everywhere. We pitched everybody and had a lot of bids. And um, I remember my, my favorite story from that period was I we was flying around so much that one night I was at dinner uh, with a, the management team of another company that was bidding for us. And I got up from the table to go to the bathroom and I stopped and I looked at a waiter and 
I was like, I, should, I need to ask where the bathroom is. But I looked at this waiter and I was like, I don't know what language they speak here. I don't actually know what country I'm in right now. Like I literally did not know whether to ask him in Spanish, to try to figure out how to ask in Mandarin. Like I was like, I don't know what to do right now. I was like, oh, I'm in Vegas. I'm in Vegas. Right, right, right. <laughs> like I had no idea where I was. That's kind of the same problem there, though, right? Crazy time. It was a really Vegas could do that to you. Yeah, Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's, that's a really that's interesting amazing. problem to have. That's like, yeah, epic. <laughs> that's an epic problem, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what happens if you're flying to a different place every week, you know, like yeah. several different places every week. So are you, uh, do you have any theater productions uh, ongoing right now? What's happening on the theater uh, side? So on the theater side, um, the biggest project I'm working on for for theater right now is actually adapting my play Ideation uh, to a movie. Um, Ooh, and so I'm working right now exciting. with a with director and a producer, and we're 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 doing an adaptation of that. Uh, Ideation is still being produced in various places. I think there's a theater company in Estonia that's going to be doing a production soon. Mm. Um, I think there's a college doing Abraham Lincoln's Big Gay Dance Party soon or that the just closed so that play gets gets done occasionally should maybe be done more often actually given its premise but you know whatever i can't can't force people to produce my plays <laughs> uh but uh i i have a couple new plays that i'm intending to work on in my my downtime is one of the big reasons why i wanted to sort of step off the wheel like I, the during the pandemic and also because i'm in london and scopely's headquartered in la you know i was on zoom calls till midnight every night right for for years and so now actually having the time recharging my batteries now i'm gonna you know use that time to get some of my writing done which i haven't been able to do for the last couple of years what's your experience been like living in um in london what's the big difference between london and california <laughs> uh london's london's better in every way except for the weather and the mexican food uh those are the only two there's things. no mexican there. i'm actually gonna go to london i'm going to london next month and i'm like watching london food videos and yeah i'm yeah, excited yeah. yeah there's fantastic food i here. gotta I'm tell excited. you though aaron like weather and mexican food are two pretty exciting things they are pretty those are, those are really good things yeah but I there's know, multiple places yeah. that i don't that. mean to discount them yeah. at all uh, I would say, you know, yes. London is probably bar none my favorite city uh, that I've ever lived. It's gorgeous. There's fascinating history literally everywhere. During the pandemic, I fell in love with this app called Voice Map. Full disclosure, I've since become an investor in the company that makes this thing because I so loved it, right? <laughs> oh, it's a good plug. Good. Yeah. Plug yeah. Voice Map, uh, which does these GPS guided audio tours, and they have like 50 of these tours in London. And so I've like explored really? the whole city. I've walked. What's all it around. called? Oh, that's cool. I'm going to download this. It's called Voice Map. And it's, you know, they, various, you know, tour guides record a tour, but you know, you put your phone away because your GPS is telling you they're, they're telling you in your, your, uh, earbuds like, okay, turn left here and you're going to walk towards this. And, um, and you just learn so much of the history of the various that locations awesome. in the city. That's, it's that a great, cool. great That's very cool. And so I've like learned so many little factoids about London that it's now very irritating to be in London with me. I'm like, ah, <laughs> do you know why that, <laughs> You know why that black mark is on the the clock there over the horse guard? It's because they beheaded Charles the First at two p.m. and it's to remind them never to kill their kings, right? Like that kind of what? stuff. Right? That's a that's a pretty brutal factoid. <laughs> it's a lot of little 
a lot of little things like that throughout London that I, you know, I, I, I totally love. But, you know, the people are also uh, terrific. The theater here is amazing. Um, yeah, we're, we've definitely enjoyed it. It's only been a year that we've really been able to get out of the house, and it's only been a month since I haven't been working crazy hours. So, yeah, it's, I feel like I'm only <laughs> just fully getting into, you know, the full experience of it. Did, did you make it to um, the coronation this past weekend? We, we watch it on television like everybody else. And we, we enjoyed it. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's fascinating a little bit of history. Yeah, I was I was tempted to go yeah. out and see, see the crowds just for the history of it, but um, it it was raining. It was terrible, you know. But I oh. I, I, I had regret from so there's this that one of the factoids I knew was that when a member of the royal family dies, they announce it from the balcony of St James Palace. And if you've never been in London or when you come here, Aaron, you'll see. St. James Palace is like right off the sidewalk. Like you're just walking down the street. And it's like, oh, it's <laughs> like, yeah, right. like, just right there. It's so like, yeah. okay, so wait a minute. Somebody's going to, a guy's going to come out like a scroll from right there off the sidewalk. And he's going to like announce that Queen Elizabeth has died. I got, I got to go see that. And in the morning when it's going to happen, I like I woke up. I was like, oh, I'm too tired. And, and besides, I'll never even get close. Like it's going to be packed with people. There's no chance. Yeah. It's that night on the news. I watch it. And sure enough, it's like the guys with the trumpets, the guy with a scroll right there, right by the sidewalk on the balcony. And there were like 12 people on the sidewalk. Like, That's huh? awesome. <laughs> <laughs> because we speak the same language, it's easy to imagine that we're the same culture. We are very different cultures Yeah. Uh, in lots of different ways. My favorite experience of different culture is soon after we got here, uh, there's a TV show here called Gogglebox, which my wife and I fell in love with, and it, Britons roll their eyes at us when we tell them we love this show. And what Gogglebox is just watching people watch television, right? These are not like, you know, <laughs> stand-up so comedians. weird. That's like the people it's watching just, people eat. It's they just, just watch normal British people watching television and commenting on it, and they're all actually very witty, and it's you know, it's 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 quite fun. It's fun. So you get little snippets of uh, of shows. And so the people, the people on the show are watching some game show called Naked Attraction, and the premise of the show is that somebody comes on and there's like five contestants who are in booths completely naked, and they're behind opaque screens, and the opaque screens start lifting from their feet up, and so the contestant <laughs> first just sees the genitalia of the five contestants. Oh my gosh! And that's on national television, or is this like adult? Yeah, so we're like, what is happening right now? Yeah, what is happening? So my cousins, are, my, my cousins are both British, and so I text. We text them. We're like, what on earth is this? How is this <laughs> on is... national television? And my British cousin texts back, "We sent the Puritans to your country." <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Very, very different. That's amazing. Aaron, thanks for spending the afternoon with us. Your evening. I know it's probably yeah, like thanks. the middle of the night for you. Who knows? Who knows what it is over in England? Um, but uh, it was uh, a, a joy to catch up and hear all the uh, amazing stories. I didn't even get to ask you, like, when you got on Strike Force, did you, like, call up the Marvel guys? And they're like, wait, aren't you a contest of champions? What? What are we doing? What? What's happening? So um, I, I, I'm sure br- briefly, awesome. I can tell you on on that. Um, you know, we were making Strike Force simultaneous to when we were making Contest. So Contest had been out. Strike Force was being developed at Kabam, uh, and so there was a great debate internally at Kabam as to whether or not 
it would cannibalize Contest of Champions when it came out. And the sale we were trying to do is buy this company, you get Contest, and you're also going to get Strikeforce. But because of the way we sold the company, they were split up. And I remember when Strikeforce came out, calling Tim, the game went out for free. <laughs> and there was just no sign we'd cannibalize Contest at all. In fact, I think Contest went up when the game came out. I was like, I told you so! You know, yeah, like, you know, that's what we were talking about just before the podcast. It's so crazy that... Marvel has so many games at the top of the genre, of each genre on the mobile, the mobile, like the mobile market, right? Yeah. Like, it's that's never happened on console that I can think of, where you, like Mar- like Marvel has dominated, you know, like the the, the best, you know, is like yeah. at the top, and they're they're yeah. all Marvel games. It's crazy. A lot of that has yeah. to do with the the economics of free to play mobile, which uh, we do another podcast. We can just talk about the economics of free to play mobile. We won't talk about, but they're good career. games. But they're really topic. good games. But there have They're been pretty. not. But every Marvel game has been brilliant, but some have been more brilliant than others. And so the, the <laughs> not quite as good games have it have not climbed to the top top of the chart. I mean, it's still incredibly hard, right? Yeah. So each one of those three, you know, is best in class in the actual game as well. Like, there's not a better fighting game on mobile than Contest of yeah. Champions. Yeah. I think that there are RPGs that are as good as strike force but strike force is absolutely up at the the top and obviously snap is just a brilliantly designed card game it's and future so good. fight future fight also yeah like so each of those games has like had to deliver top quality gameplay the the, the ip couldn't carry it there themselves and i think the marvel guys would be the first to say that like for, for job one yeah. not to speak for the marvel guys but it's like job one is you have to make a brilliant game and then, if you do, the fans will reward you, right? And that is what the market's yeah. shown. That's good advice for anybody in uh, in our industry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all you have to do is make a good game, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you, easy, easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we keep we keep looking for that button in the engine. It's like make game. Um, Where's the Unity button for make this game? Anyway, yes. All right, uh, Aaron. Thanks for spending the afternoon with us. Great catching up. Uh, it's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Nice meeting you, Aaron. So, uh, Aaron, I know you have a lot to say. I do. Because you told me. Well, I there was to say. That's there was a seed that he planted in that conversation. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to talk to Alex about this. It really, it was like a seed. So if you remember in the podcast, like he said a lot of interesting stuff. We could talk about The Simpsons all day. We could talk about um both of the marvel games and how marvel is dominating the mobile market in a way like in all the genres like that's a whole topic but he did say something where he was talking about how he was in he lives in london and he was watching tv and there was like some nude show or something and it made yeah. me think like about culture and how depending on where you are what's on tv is different and then on the internet, how that's starting to like get like you see these really big platforms right now, like YouTube, right? And the platforms are starting to do the same things that the Puritans did, right? Like they're starting to like break off and you know, different like groups like Reddit is a different culture than Twitter, for example, and Twitter is a different culture than you like the comment section, right? It can depending mm-hmm. on where you are, the yeah. comment section changes, and then that drove me to to to, to video games. And I'm going to bring it all the way back around. I know it's going to sound weird, but I got to this point where I was like, you know, in video games, full disclosure, my my parents-in-law are German. 
And they took us one time to a nude beach. And it was super uncomfortable. In fact, because I'm like, <laughs> I'm an American, and we're on a nude beach, and it's like... Everybody's naked except for you? <laughs> uh-huh. And oh, they actually and wait, left. And your in-laws were naked? <laughs> yes, everyone was. Oh, my gosh. And, oh, my gosh. No, I didn't look. No, so then... So then Nadia, yeah. you didn't even just take a peek? You know, you were no, curious? Shut like, up. No, they actually waited till they got in the water. <laughs> but it made me think about... When I was living out there, there was a huge thing about violence in video games. So this is how I'm bringing it all back around. If you notice, a majority of the games have solutions for their problems in the games with violence. Like you solve the problems in the game by destroying or killing, right? And it made me think about how that's like an accepted thing. Like, oh, we have a new game coming out. What do you do? Well, you kill everything. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? And there's like, there's some games like Farmville and like the games he worked on don't do, like some of those games don't do that, right? Like, um, like Simpsons. Like you're not, right? And it's a very successful game. Yeah. Anyways, I, that's what it, that's where my mind went. I was like, uh, you know what? Thinking of cultural exceptions. Aaron, that's a, that's a very interesting observation. <laughs> yeah, there are some games that are like building, you know, like Civilization. And actually, he, right. you know, that he brought up Civ as well. He, he did, said that yes. was one of Very his formative game. gaming experiences. You kill in that game then, too, though. Um, yeah, I guess so. But it it's it's like ancillary, right? You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's not the goal, or maybe yeah, maybe like Sim City or The Sims is more building. Minecraft is my Minecraft is building. Yeah, well, you're destroying building. things and making new stuff out of it. I guess it's still building. Yeah. And yeah. then there are games where it's like building and killing, like, uh, you know, Warcraft. Survivor games. Yeah. That's a, that is a very interesting observation. When you were living in Germany, yeah. did you... I mean, so, okay, the nude beach, that's a, that's, a, that's a great example of culture shock. That's the connection point. I worked with a guy uh, who, work, who worked on Turok. And he had a, a he had a really cool artifact on his desk, and I say artifact because I look at it as an artifact. It's this thing, this relic. It was a copy of Turok from Germany, the Nintendo sixty four, where all of the enemies had to be changed into robots that bled oil because oh, the yeah. violence was, you know. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Germany I, had a, a name for that law. They had a, a, a no no blood, right? There was a. Was yeah, no blood for, for and no ragdoll too was another one. No ragdoll, you couldn't ragdoll yeah. anything. Um, I remember we had we had to make adjustments to some of our games uh, back in the bunch of days for release in Germany. Yeah, and that started to change, and there was some game burnings or whatever, like book burnings, you know. So it got me thinking, and this is the other connection point. So there's like, he said that, and I felt like I would never watch a show like that. And then I started thinking about violent video games and how my wife would never play a violent video game. And then I thought about the, um, the, the, the connection point there of like what we just talked about. And then this happened the other day. So my daughter has been begging me to play Fortnite, okay? And they won't stop. And they have a Switch. And I was like, okay, all her friends play Fortnite. I'm going to let her play a little bit. So I downloaded Fortnite for her. And they, they started playing. So there's a 10-year-old and there's a 7-year-old. And I think those are, and the 7-year-old watch, she's a huge gamer. So I know that's young, right? And I'm like, I don't know, you know. And there's some adult supervision stuff you could do on there. So I was like, I'm going to try it. And they played one, They played literally for 30 minutes, Alex, okay? They come down for lunch. 
they sit down and I was like, what did you think of Fortnite? Cause I, w- I was like working or something and I didn't have time to watch them play. And they're like, listen to what listen. This is a 10 year old and a seven year old talking to me. And what the seven year old said first, Oh yeah, it was awesome. Uh, there was a guy in a building and I set it on fire and he died. And then the other one said, <laughs> I killed two people. <laughs> And my wife is sitting across the table and she goes, what? Oh, no. <laughs> and that, like, my brain is not turned off from yes. that situation. Like, I don't know what to do. It's like, you don't really kill people in Fortnite. They turn into graphics, right? But just listening to their language, and they never talk like that. Like, my daughter never says, there was a guy in a building and I set it on fire and he died. Like, that's just, that sentence is so... this. Podcast is probably going to get flagged yes. now because of that. You know what I'm no. saying? No. Well, I mean, look, you you take you t- that's a sentence, and you take it out of context of playing a game, and it's horrific. Just just like if you know, just you like went nudity, to, you went to go, right? well, or if you went to go see um, the the you know uh, the um, end end you know end game, right? Oh yeah, there was this guy who blinked his his eyes and killed every other person in the universe. It's like. Oh, that's fucking Holocaust. That's horrific. Yeah, that is. But in the context of of a story or in the context of a game, it it serves it it serves a narrative or it serves a, a mechanic, and you know you can't divorce the the that sentence from the context. Right, and it's like nudity. Otherwise, it's otherwise your, your head hurts. <laughs> yeah, it's like nudity. You right? It's like your intentions when how you're looking. Like I've done life drawing. I went to art school, and we would see naked people like every day old people young people and it's anyways that's what got me thinking when he said that i was yeah. like oh my uh-huh. goodness yeah. like <laughs> like and then that happened that's that a... like later that day with yes. my kids <laughs> and i'm like you gotta be kidding me so yeah it's a yeah yeah the i was reminded from that conversation uh, just like how good um how good his timing was you know it's like he rode the wave from Simpsons oh, yeah. tapped out, you know, uh, through like basically, I don't know. I kind of bookend. I think you could bookend the, the 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 explosive growth of immaturity of mobile from tapped out through you know this last year uh, when the Scopely had their exit and and man, he he wrote that he perfect did. perfectly. <laughs> yeah, good on yeah. good on you. Cool. All right. Well. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with uh, Mr. Lope, and thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, and if you haven't checked out some of the past episodes, there, of course, they're up on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and uh, we would love to introduce you to some of our other industry friends through our back catalog, so you can check that out there, and hope to see you on the Discord. Oh, and there's more to come. Oh, yeah. There's more to come. They don't know, They have no idea who the next two are, and they're awesome. we got some exciting stuff lined up. Um, yeah. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Fourth Curtain Podcast. To get a peek at upcoming episodes or to send in questions to the show, visit our site at thefourthcurtain.com. And be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>